And have them hanging out on the line I can start an iron two dozen shirts Four you can count from one to nine I can scoop up a great big dipper Full of lard from the drippings can Throw the skillet, go out and do my shopping Be back before it melts in the pan Cause I'm a woman W-O-M-A-N I'll say it again And scrub till this old house is shining like a dime Feed the baby, grease the car And powder my face at the same time Get all dressed up, go out and swing Till 4 a.m. and then Lay down at five, jump up at six And start all over again Cause I'm a If you come to me hungry, you know I'm gonna fill you full of grits. If it's loving you, like an I'll kiss you and give you the shivering bits. Cause I'm a woman, W-O-M-A-N, I'll say it again. I got a $20 gold piece, says there ain't nothing I can do. I can make a dress out of a feedback and I can make a man out of you Cause I'm a woman, a W-O-M-A-N I say it again Cause I'm a woman, W-O-M-A-N And that's all Well, welcome, and this is uh, your January 2020 magazine and a lot's happened hasn't it and uh we've got the usual team with us tonight as well as a guest i'm pleased to say a very nice guest um so let's go around in the normal way hello brian here hi it's alan here and it's kate and our guest the new chairman for the worcester talking newspaper Dave Clark. Hello. <laughs> oh. Thank you for the welcome. Yes, tell us a bit about yourself. Oh, Lord. I, well, I... No. <laughs> yeah, I, I, born and brought up in London. Um, went to grammar school down there and uh, then started work when I had to. Um, I can't say I've had a career because my career really has careered literally all over the place. But uh, worked down there, of course, and then I worked in Germany for a couple of years um then what oh yes i came back and then i went to australia for a number of years and then i came back and settled in worcester been here ever since thoroughly enjoyed it councillor for 20 years um mayor for one retired uh, from the council anyway about 10 years ago and um now i just give talks um do a bit of wood turning bit of cooking and washing up and generally do as I'm told <laughs> and that's why I'm here <laughs> welcome to the club yeah, thank you I'm looking forward to enjoying it yes <clears throat> well you might do <laughs> who knows you never know right we also like to thank uh, Carol Hartland Janet Weaver 
who have been volunteers for a long time and do an awful lot behind the scenes. <laughs> OK, um, we're going to go start off with a bit about January. Um, but before we do that, Brian, you've got some stories you're going to tell us. Can you give us a rough idea of what's coming? Well, some of our um, members may remember that I've been delving into the archives of Letters to the Times. We started just around about the time of the First World War and we're now reaching the mid-30s. That's one block. And from a very interesting book by Matthew Paris called Scorn, there's some very apposite things on this occasion relating particularly to sport. But the main effort I've produced tonight relates to Moses and the Ten Commandments. I'll say no more at the moment. I thought there was originally 15, but one um, stone was dropped, so they lost five. Well, you'll, 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 you'll learn more if you have patience. It's okay, all here. OK, OK. Alan, you've got some things for us. I've today. just got one item, really, which is uh, based on my service in the Canal Zone. All right. Well, what 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 time was that? What does we you know? What what? Nineteen fifty one, fifty two, fifty three. Oh, you missed the Suez crisis then. I missed the Suez. I didn't cause it. Laid <laughs> <laughs> the groundwork. <laughs> yeah. What was it like though before the Suez crisis? Was it obviously going to come? It, it well, if you remember it, it was uh, just after Farouk was deposed. Yeah. And the situation was in a bit of a mess. And was Colonel Nasser came in then? Nagib was Nagib. the guy who took over. Oh, was it? Nagib, yeah. Oh, right. And Nasser took over from, from him. Yeah. Oh, right, OK. But um, the, uh, the authorities here, with typical colonial uh, thinking, Arrogance. thought that, <laughs> oh, those Egyptians would never be able to run the canal. Right. <laughs> so yeah, they yeah, sent yeah. us in to look after it. Yeah. Um, it was all done in a rush. And uh, as you'll find out when I go through the story. Oh, OK, but, uh, I won't, I won't yeah. go on to spoil it. Right, Kate, you've got some odds and ends for us as well, haven't you? Uh, I have. I've got um, the um, story of a, a lady of... Um, well, they, I think the family were not of poor means, but were of everyday type of means, uh, who was born in the... Uh, 19, 1904, I think. 1902, she was. 1902. Yeah, yeah. uh, and she um, grew up, and it tells about the, her life. It, it, she actually has written this, and it's about her life and the, the lifestyle growing up in that period and, and uh, up until her adulthood. So that should be sort of have a few memories, not for any of us, <laughs> but uh, quite, inter- anyway. it'll be interesting. <laughs> and then I've got some of my usual. Uh, definitions of different things what what different uh, sayings and things that we we um, use yeah. and we don't always understand we just chime out these um expressions and not always 100 percent certain where they've come from and then some of my children's uh little sayings that uh they they uh churn out from time to time that make everybody laugh um but they say in great sincerity so uh, a bit of gervais finn there at the end so we'll see <laughs> like the sound of that yeah Anyway, uh, I want to start off um, with the January quiz, like we did last time. But this time we had a, uh, apparently a, a lady didn't hear the answers properly um, because you, you were all given the answers and, of course, everyone knew the answers straight away, so she couldn't hear them properly. Right. So we've got to be clear about the answers. And then if you can expand on them afterwards... 
you know, the, 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 when you get it right, of course. Uh, if you can expand on it afterwards, you might get some extra points. OK, so the first question, this is a January the 1st question. Uh, today, in 1785, the Daily Universal Register first appeared. By what name do we know it today? Census? No. No. Oh. Yeah, Brian, Brian, the Times. Brian's got a point straight away there, yes. Brian, and can anyone expand on the Times? You know, anybody got any little stories about the Times or anything like that? Wait till I get to the letters. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, <laughs> sorry, Brian. I didn't mean to step on your toes. At all. Right, okay. That's where Samuel Pepys began his diary today in 1660. In 1673, he was appointed secretary to which State Department? The You've got to say it louder, the Brian. Navy. Because people can't hear. That's right. The Navy. The Navy. Uh, and can you expand on Samuel Pepys? Now, everyone's got a story about Samuel Pepys, surely to God. He had an eye for the ladies. He certainly did, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he certainly did. I think uh, when most of his diaries were. Uh, um, put out again. The, that part was severely, heavily censored. <laughs> I don't think. I don't think this applied to Peeps. I have an idea it was someone else of a similar vintage that area where they were caught in the laundry cupboard kissing the maid by his wife, and his wife said, "My dear, I am surprised." No, dear, says the man. We are surprised. You are amazed. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually that does sound like peeps. I mean, he got caught in some embarrassing <laughs> positions with women. Okay. Uh, so, oh yes, which German physicist died today in 1894, and has a unit of frequency named after him? Hertz. Oh, well done. Well done. Thank you. I don't I was think beginning it. to think I was in the wrong place. <laughs> 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 You'll get used to it. Yes, uh, if you didn't hear that, the answer to that was hurts. And it hurts a lot if you get struck by lightning. Okay, let's have a look. Uh, oh, good God. This, this one's not nothing to be proud of for the BBC. But January the 1st on uh, 1964, Top of the Pops went on the air for the first time. Who presented it? Is it Jimmy Savile? Yeah. Would it be Savile? Jimmy Savile did, yeah. Yes, later to be found out. In fact, I mean, the strange thing about that, when I was um, in my teens, um, I lived like you in London, and he used to go around the, uh, the Royals, you know, Tottenham Royal and place. I can't remember where he played normally. And the rep, he had a reputation there for um, doing exactly what he got caught for in the end. Yeah. And uh, nobody seemed to do anything about it. It was just ignored in those days, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. Strange. Anyway, um, I want to start with um, Kate today because she's got some um, interesting stuff about what happened in the first two decades of the last century. Uh, this was written... Uh, it was a... a, a book that was self-printed um, for her friends by a, a who was named as Dolly Prosser I, mean, I think her name was Doris and 
it's a reflection on what life was like for the average family, country family, I'll add, um, back in those days. Kate? I was born in Little Hope Farm in the home of my late grandmother, Anne Bayliss. My mother, too, had been born there 30 years earlier. My late brother, Capel, had been born 11 years earlier on the estate of the late Emily Foley, where my parents lived for two years. Three generations of the Cook family had lived there as gamekeepers in all 127 years. I was christened in the in the church locally uh, as Doris Mirian, the second name after my two grandmothers, Mary and Anne. In 1904, my father rented the new inn, a local inn. It had been in earlier days a coaching inn where horses were changed to complete their journey. It was long, old and lofty, where all rooms downstairs had stone floors, not easy to keep clean. My father took the whole contents of the house. Its four bedrooms were large and there were two staircases. The attic covered the whole of the top of the house. No bathrooms in those days. A very large kitchen with a range which heated the water. A large back kitchen, smoke room, bar, a very large club room, an entrance porch and cellar. My mother took a girl just leaving school from her old house to look after me when we moved into the inn. She lived with us for two years before getting a post in London. Then my baby brother was born. I don't remember Percy as a baby as I was only two, but I remember when he was about four and he hated to be put in the bath and made a fuss to be lifted out, which ended in tears and so to bed. In those days, baby boys were dressed like girls and wore his golden curls just as he did. He looked just like me. We had a most wonderful garden of a quarter of an acre, which grew everything. Fruit of all sorts, vegetables and, of course, flowers. There were two small greenhouses, one for tomatoes and one for cucumbers. Two hives of bees near the herb garden. We had plenty of space to play, with an apple orchard and a small meadow. We had lots of poultry, ducks, geese, turkeys and fowls, usually four cows, a pony and, of course, pigs, which supplied the house with bacon. We had in those days lots of people to stay with us. My mother took in and lodged an elderly man called Bob, who had lost his family. He helped in the garden and he did odd jobs about the place. The pony we had was bought from a farmer who had bought it for his only son to ride. She, she, the she, the horse, proved too much of a handful for him, so we had her. She was the same age as Percy. They grew up together. They had several differences of opinion, and she threw him off his back, her, her back many times. One of my earliest memories was of a pigeon match held at our house. My parents got hundreds of pigeons from places in the neighbourhood. They were lofted in our attic. As children, we would creep up the stairs to watch them flying around. I suppose we found them fun to watch. Little things please little minds. There was a large yew tree at the top end of our garden where a summer house had been built. We used to go there on Saturdays with my father and make a fire on the cobblestones and toast bacon. We enjoyed that more than sitting down to a proper meal indoors. We had a wonderful village village blacksmith with his family, six girls and a boy. His wife kept the post office and a shop. I went to school when I was six, and the eldest girl, Annie, took me. It seemed a long way. I still remember, nearly three miles, and I think she carried me some of the way. 
Each place we came to, I wanted to know if that was the school. When the weather was wet or bad, Mrs. Voice, and that was Annie's mother, or my mother, took us to school in the horse and trap. The new inn was situated in a very rural district area where houses were not near and activities were only very, very simple and there were mainly farm cottages around. We were four miles from the nearest town and we didn't cycle or have a pony and trap. We had to walk. There were no buses in those days. There was a carrier cart each uh, came by once each week on market day and it held about six persons. We really had good service from tradespeople. Three butchers, three bakers, two grocers and a fish cart weekly. Coal and oil for lighting and heating. There was no electricity in those days. The postman arrived at 9am with the daily papers and he was back to collect the mail at 4.30pm. We had the local paper on Fridays. I used to look forward to visits from my grandmother cook who didn't come very often. I could always look forward to a new frock. She had been a tailoress and always chose nice things and she liked to make, liked me so she loved new clothes. We lived there in the heart of hunting country, foxhounds, harriers and other hounds. My father loved hunting, by foot of course, so he and I went hunting whenever we could. He always knew which way to go to see the fox. His life as a gamekeeper had seen to that. We saw many sights, some not so good, when a rider failed to get over the fence, and although I saw many foxes, he nearly always got away and beat the hounds. They were indeed clever. The first thing we had to do when we knew the hounds were meeting near was to get our pony safely stabled, or she too went hunting, and my oldest brother had to go many miles on his bicycle to get her home. She could manage most fences." Thanks. There's a part two of that, isn't there? You're going to read a little bit more later. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I, I think it's fascinating what the different styles of life in those days. I noted there the uh, postman delivering, <laughs> yes. and collecting uh, yeah. twice a day. Yeah. Twice a day. Yeah. That sounds yeah. yeah. And also, the, yeah, I mean, just the outside toilets. Can you imagine snow and ice and things like that? Yeah. Oh, God. You mentioned the foliage. Is that part of the foley? Family yes. Yes. Family, yeah. Yeah. They, they, I think they had a huge estate. Yeah. Iron, iron masters up in the black country. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Huge family. Yeah. Okay, let's um, have a, some more January quiz. Okay, today, this is the 2nd of January. No, we're really swinging along. Um, today in 1769, Sir Jos- Josiah Reynolds made a speech at the fir- as the first president of which artistic organisation? Um, was that the Royal Academy? Royal Academy. I'm going to give you both a point for that. Did you say as well? I said the Royal Society. Oh, no, no. That's not good enough. No, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, was a, that's a point for Brian and David. Uh, anyone can expand on Sir Josiah Reynolds? Joshua, Joshua. Was it Joshua Reynolds? No, just Joshua, Joshua yeah, I beg your pardon. I can't, I can't read. That's why I don't do the stories. Can't add anything. Temporary Gainsborough, I think. Yeah, stubs in that area. Okay, this is. I, I don't know whether you all remember this guy. I didn't actually like him that much, but it's an interesting question. Comedian Dick Emery died today in eight, 1983. Can't even read. Which of his famous characters had the catchphrase? Ooh, you are awful, but I like you. <laughs> Mandy? 
Mandy, yeah, bro, you're on fire. He used to live right by me. <coughs> and, yeah, I used to live. I remember when I was a kid being in the local fish and chip shop and I saw him for the first time. And, uh, yeah, he's very, very little man. But, uh, yeah, he lived in... I lived in Topsham Road in Tudenbeck and I think he lived round in Mantilla. Oh, right. Did, yeah. he, did you ever get into conversation with him? Did no, no, because I was only a young kid. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. I was probably about eight or nine. Mm. And another one we had come down our road was uh, Sir James Robertson Justice. Oh, I like yeah, yeah. Yeah. He yeah. Did, yeah. used to drive a big Bentley and he used yeah. to come yeah. down our road to miss out the, yeah. the yeah. traffic jam. He, um, <laughs> somebody told me I look a bit like him. <laughs> yeah, you need a bit more bulk, but yeah, the, the beard and the mouth, they're the there. Yeah. Did he have red hair? I didn't know he had red hair. Yeah, I've only seen him in black and white films. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, okay. Hey, well, I think you deserve a point for that. I rather like that. Right. Yeah. Okay, let's see what else we got. Uh, uh, no, 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 no. Oh, yeah. Born today. In 1727, which English soldier commanded the British capture of Quebec in 1759, where Wolf. he was killed? Wolf. Wolf. Yeah, Wolf. Yeah, well, I'll give you both a point for that, because you haven't got one yet. <laughs> That's a point for Alan, and another point for Brian. OK, now, Brian, I've got a story for you here, which I'm going to pass you, and it's about William Booth and Charles Gordon... Charles George Gordon, in fact, to give him his full name, known as Chinese Gordon. There's yes. a connection between them, oh, yeah. and I'd like... Do you know what it is already, without saying it? you know what I it is? I think I do. All oh, right, OK. Well, this is the connection between William Booth and Charles George Gordon. General Gordon was a soldier, sword and Bible in his hands, taking British peace and justice into many heathen lands... William Booth was not a soldier, not a military man, since his father was a preacher. As a preacher, he began. Gordon fought in the Crimea. Then to far Cathay he came, sacked Peking and smashed the rebels. Chinese Gordon he became. Booth came down to preach in London, worked for justice, truth and right, formed his own Salvation Army gladly fought the gospel fight. Gordon did great work in Egypt, lightening the people's gloom, till the Mahdi's hordes overwhelmed him and he died there in Khartoum. General Booth and General Gordon knew alcohol must lead to sin. How sad it is their names remind us of Britain's leading brands of gin. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. There's a wonderful connection between the two of them. <laughs> OK, we have some more January questions. to be up to January the 3rd. Oh, Alan, I'm going to pass you uh, your next story, if I can find it, okay. uh, so you can have a quick look at it before you start. You'll love it. Uh, it sounds difficult. <laughs> Uh, let me see. Well, while I'm doing that, while I'm looking for it, I'll uh, just give you the question. <coughs> Actor John Thor was born today in 1942. What was the name of his the character he played in the TV series, The Sweeney? Oh, I remember that one. <laughs> um, oh, dear. 
You'll have to remind us on that one. Can't find it. <laughs> no, no, I'm still looking for oh. Alan's story. <laughs> it was Regan. Oh, George, Regan. George, yeah. George. Yeah. Uh, what was what was the other one's name? The sergeant. No, it was Dennis Waterman. Dennis Waterman. I can't remember the name of the character. Carter. Uh, uh, Regan oh, and Carter. Yeah. Regan Carter. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you brought a story of your own, though, uh, uh, Alan. Uh, no, you? the only thing I've got this week is uh, the Canal Zone one. I'll crack on with that then. I'll find you this other one for later. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm not quite sure how this round is going to go, but we'll, uh, we'll have a crack at it. Service in the canal zone. Leaving school at 16, I trained and qualified as a path lab technician in 1950. Is this relevant, you ask? Oh, yeah. Because when I joined the RAF in January 1951... I was given an immediate rank as a junior technician, much to the consternation and annoyance of the drill staff at Bridge North, where I did my square bashing. Anyone in the mob around that time will remember the newly introduced rank with a single inverted chevron on the sleeve. Inevitably, we came, became identified as Chinese lance corporals, <laughs> and almost as inevitably, being six foot three, I was rechristened Lofty for the rest of my service. A little bit later, I worked with a colleague at RAF Rorton Hospital, who was my height, but built like the proverbial brick privy. He was known as Tiny. <laughs> there was a call for personnel to go overseas, so I volunteered for Germany or Singapore, and I got posted to the zone. This is how things work in the service. The natives were getting restless and had already given King Farouk his demob papers, so a lot of troops were sent out in a hurry. I entered RAF Fired en route to the hospital and we quickly found out that all the billets were full and the overflow had spread out to camp beds on the verandas. Very quickly, the cataclysmic decision was made. Tents would have to be put up on the main square. The station warrant officer was not a happy bunny. And so I was under canvas for 15 months. We made ourselves as comfortable as we could, but purgatory took on a new meaning when the Camsine sandstorm blew in. Although I'd been cycle racing in the UK, I decided that I wouldn't take my race bike. I would see if I could scrounge something in Egypt. So after trying to race on a vintage Bitsa for a few weeks, I was soon asking my mate Tommy Bromwich, who owned a bike shop in Coventry, if he could crate up my bike and wheels and send out to the canal zone. This was soon done with the assurances in the UK that the crate would be delivered directly to me. But, alas. I remember I was ordered to report to the guard room on a matter of some urgency and on arrival was confronted by a very smartly dressed officer with lots of gold dangly bits hanging off his shoulder, a gleaming humber super snipe with an important-looking flag on the bonnet. He told me quite firmly that in future I was not to employ private contractors to deliver parcels to the canal zone. It was not, repeat, not permissible. He then took me round to the back of the car and we unloaded my crated race bike in a somewhat chilly atmosphere. Although I was delighted to get my bike, 
I thought that tipping him might not be appropriate. Training in the early days was a nightmare. We had to go out in uniform in groups of four until the situation became a little bit calmer. Fired Village was in bounds, as was Ismailia, but still only in small groups. Eventually things steadied a bit and we could get out on the bikes in whatever kit we could buy or scrounge. Our unofficial club room was the Arizona Rest House, just opposite the camp gates on the Treaty Road. Hands up all those who remember it. Road racing was very difficult due to the situation. Even out training in a small bunch, the odd rock would be thrown at us. There were quite a few races on camp roads at Kasserit, Devasoir, Cabrit, Abiad and Fayed. There were quite a few of us who were about the same standard, so results were never guaranteed, although Jimmy Pike had a killer sprint. Time trialling was done mainly on the canal road down by the Great Bitter Lake. Keen competition and a surprisingly robust prize list of cups and medals. I'm looking at some of the medals as I write. We did manage to put on a three-day tour of the zone, which took place towards the end of 1952, I think. Some of the details are now a bit sketchy, but I think Casferit was one of the stage finishes, and the finish on day three was at Fayed. Jim Pike won that stage with Brian G second, Ronnie Calvert third, myself fourth, and Alex McQuirter fifth. There was great excitement at one time when it was announced that RAF Middle East Command had received an invitation to an international road race to be held in Malta. Selection races were organised, including, rather bizarrely, a four-up team time trial. Then the good news came. I had been selected. Then the bad news came. The RAF couldn't find any seats for the team to get to Malta. <laughs> we, hope we weren't high enough up the pecking order, obviously. The day job continued to be routine for most of the time, as with any type of work, but interspersed with periods of extreme action and stress. In those days, a patient needing a blood transfusion in the UK was a relatively simple task. Take a sample of blood from the patient to determine blood group, put in a request for blood from the blood bank, nearly always in your own hospital, cross-match to double-check, and then transfuse the patient. Not in the canal zone. Not at that time. No blood bank. So... After determining the patient's group, you called in volunteers from a panel whose group had been previously checked, and then you transfused directly from donor to patient using a two-way syringe. Quite often this would be concurrent with surgeons working on the patient treating trauma injuries so the atmosphere could get quite highly charged. 1953, of course, was coronation year celebrated all over the world in military bases by a parade. I seem to remember that most of the hospital personnel conveniently found themselves involved in patient care in various ways. We did, however, promote a circuit race at Fayed on the camp roads, which was called, somewhat grandly, the Coronation Grand Prix. I can't tell you who won because I wasn't involved in the finale. After being in the leading group for most of the event, together with Jim Pike, Pete Eva and Eric Beecham, I punctured with one lap to go. 
Another rider gave me his bike and I finished about fifth or sixth. That was one huge disappointment. I really wanted that one. Time expiry date was looming towards the end of the year and another friend and myself made plans to ride back home together. We would get a lift on the Milk Run flight from the zone to Malta along the North African coast. Now Pete was due out about three weeks before me but we thought we could hide him on our camp for a little while, nobody would notice, so we could journey back together. No chance. He was discovered and told in no uncertain terms to be on his way. Well, I, I think that was the term the flight sergeant used. <laughs> I didn't cycle all the way back across Europe on my own. I did let the tra train take the strain for some of the way. Did I enjoy my time in the zone? Only if I remember the good times, but it was an experience and one from which I hope I learned more about my fellow man and myself. Whilst I hope my little tale passed away a few minutes and perhaps even amused, there is a health warning to end with. In those far off days, sunblock hadn't been invented and the pathway of sun damage on the human skin wasn't fully explored. As young cyclists, we were a little bit careful in the sun. We used to apply a bit of oil and gradually got brown. I remember if anybody was unfortunate enough to get badly sunburned and reported sick, they were promptly put on a charge for self-inflicted injury. That was the services for you. Most racing cyclists at that time wore short-sleeved tops, shorts, but very little in the way of head protection the occasional cotton cap, and quite a few riders had crew cuts for convenience. You can see where this is heading, I expect. The very real danger of skin cancer due to continued exposure to the sun. Now, there's a few of us who meet up occasionally to have a short bike ride, a lunch and a chat about the old days, and one subject which nearly always crops up is skin cancer. One common type usually starts off with a small pimple or a lesion which doesn't want to heal up and which could eventually transform into an ulcer. Now I've had about five surgical procedures so far to circumvent skin cancer on my head and face, so that is an answer. Of course, prevention is better than the cure, so can I strongly suggest that if you're off outdoors to enjoy the sun, please use sunblock, and if, like me, you are follicularly challenged, then wear a hat as well. Thank you. Okay, we've got a few um, January uh, questions here for the quiz. And after that, Mike, even David, <laughs> a really good night tonight. <laughs> even David, um, or Dave, um, has got another um, few questions is going to ask the team about uh, famous in Brit famous British inventions. However, this is uh, we got to January the third still uh, today in 1895. The play "An Ideal Ideal Husband" opened in London. The Ideal Husband. Who wrote it? Oscar Wilde. Brian, you've got to talk louder. Oscar we get, Wilde. We get yeah. complaints. Oscar <laughs> Wilde. Sure. No, it's Oscar Wilde. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> 
Brian's well in the lead here. Can you expand anything about Oscar Wilde? There's plenty about him. Oh, plenty about him, but we're going for an hour just on him, I suppose. A great tragic figure. Brilliant genius, genius of a man, morally bankrupt. <laughs> well, yeah, but who, who was the one that actually caused all these problems in the end? Marquis of Queensbridge. Yeah, son. that's right. Yeah, you've got to have an extra point for that. Yeah, I'll give you one too, David, because I, I heard you out the corner of my ear. <laughs> Certainly okay. because I'm a guest this week. <laughs> <laughs> You're the chairman, we've got to be nice. <laughs> okay. Um, right, we're round to you with... Um, a, a, you want a, a couple few, of questions, do you? Uh, well, it's ten I do. <laughs> you want all ten? Okay, I'll run through them. Um, now, the first one... Um, yeah, this one... Just forget about the Chinese <laughs> and their um, acupuncture. Uh, this is about people who... <laughs> Like sticking things in people. It's uh, who invented the first vaccination in 1796. There's a Jenner. clue for you. It was yep, absolutely right. What was his first name? No idea. <laughs> well, um, gotcha. Edward. Don't worry about it. It was Jenner. That was a point for Alan. Now, here's a real easy one. Who invented the first raincoat? Macintosh. Macintosh. Yeah, I give point each yeah, for Brian. Got to be for that, isn't it? Brian and Kate there, yeah. Now, even I know this one. The first postage stamp. Hill. Roland mm-hmm. Hill. Roland Hill, yeah. yeah. Which one was it? Was it the Penny Black? Penny Black was the yeah, first, first commercial one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, now, that, who uh, sorted this one out? Who invented the first, or well, came up with the first Christmas card? Prince oh, Albert. Prince Albert. Albert, was it? Nope. No, no. it was a John Calcutt Horsley. Oh, there we go. We learn something all the time, oh, don't we? Albert the used to hang, hang Christmas trees upside down, didn't he, from the ceiling? That was uh, the original idea with <laughs> Christmas <laughs> trees. Ancient <laughs> Saxon custom. <laughs> <laughs> you know a few jokes about it, but it wasn't that much. <laughs> How about the anaesthetic? What was the first anaesthetic? Lister. Yes. Well, it was chloroform, but who came up with the idea? Oh, I thought it was Lister. Oh. No, James Young Simpson. Hmm. That was 1847. Hmm. As early as that. One that comes nearer to our time, 1901. How about the first vacuum cleaner? Wasn't it Dyson? It was Hoover. No, <laughs> no it wasn't Hoover. Oh. That's what I would have come up with. Siemens, no. Uh, no, mm-hmm. no, uh, he wasn't uh, in the Salvation Army, but mm. his name was Booth. Cubert <laughs> oh. Cecil Booth. Cubert. <laughs> yeah, don't get that name around much, do you? Penicillin, that's an easy one, isn't it? Oh, Fleming. 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 Alexander Fleming. I think we could put him in Paddington Hospital. Uh, I knew this guy. Hovercraft. Who invented the Hovercraft? Um, I remember seeing it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Christopher... Oh. Oh, her name is gone. Gone. Remember, hang on. No, it's gone. No. Well, you did have you. You think were there. A, you were halfway there. Think of a family, uh, a, a farm bird that goes around being really cockerel. annoying. Yes, yeah. <laughs> cockerel. That's it. Cockerel. Yeah. Yeah. Two left. The first test tube baby. Nineteen seventy-eight. Uh, Brown was her surname. I can't think of her Christian name. Oh gosh. But, but mm. this is what I thought it was a girl, but it's Patrick Christopher Steptoe. Oh, 
Oh, it doesn't say that. Yes, of course, it was he the was doctor, the doctor, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. yeah. yeah, the test tube baby was actually a girl. Was a girl. Yeah. 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 His brother Brown. was Albert. And <laughs> this one was actually on television not so long ago. Who invented the World Wide Web? Berners Tim. Lee. That's it. Berners Lee. Berners Lee, yeah, in 1991. Mm. There you go. Thank you, sir. That's Thank very you. kind. <laughs> um, what, what have we got now? Oh, here we are, January the 4th. <laughs> I say Brian's in the lead at the moment. He's got 10 points. Alan and David have both got four each, and uh, Kate's got three. So it's quite close, except for Brian, who's stampeded in the head. <laughs> oh, we got... Yeah, OK. <laughs> Uh, what have we got? What have we got? What have we got? Oh, yeah. Born today in 1935, which boxer became the youngest world heavyweight champion? Henry. Hmm. He was American. Oh, American. Oh, yeah, yeah. No. What brand was he born? He was born in 1935. Could it be Joe, uh, no, not Joe Louis. No, no, no. no. I'll be Mohammed. Oh, um. No, Patterson. Yeah. Patterson. Floyd Patterson. Floyd. Brian, yeah. Brian, 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 yes. <laughs> Floyd. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, today, in, uh, this is again 4th of January, today in 1957, Guy Mitchell was singing the blues at the top of the charts. Who did the same a week later? I knew for Phil. Tommy Steele. Yes. Well done. Very good. Well done. Seven other ones. We've got one here. Uh, Oh, yes. The TV comedy One Foot in the Grave first appeared today in 1990. (laughs) What what is the name of Victor Victor Mildew's wife? Annette Crosby in real life. Yes. Can't remember yeah. what her name is in the character. Crosby, isn't yeah. she? No. It wasn't Mildred, was it? No. No. No, no, no. It's the same, same first letter. Oh. Oh, right. Mary? Oh. No, it's Margaret. Okay, that's the fourth one. <laughs> okay. Um, Kate, what have you got for us? <laughs> oh, part two of... Um, have we got time? Yeah, we've got seven minutes. I think we can do that. When I say we've got seven minutes, that's until we take a break. It's got nothing to do with us finishing early. (laughs) This is part two of the the account of this um, lady's early childhood and early life. Right, at Christmas now. At Christmas time, we had several days and nights dressing poultry for market with the help of local people. I was given the job of getting the meals and the cleaning up after the job was finished. I'm afraid I didn't look forward to Christmas in the way in which I should have done. We had pigs to be killed and salted at this time of the year, which made it all a very busy time. And sometimes, if the weather was bad, deep snow, etc., one had to depend on the Welsh dealer to get rid of the poultry, and that depended on their being able to travel to Hereford, no deep freezers or fridges in those days, only a cool cellar. Christmas Eve and day were spent cooking and preparing for the Boxing Day lunch. My father gave the local hunt a free free lunch each year, so by the time I was 13, I had been taught to lay the table for a 100 people. Mm. The, The club room was large enough to seat them all when it had been stripped of its normal furniture. Trestle tables and benches were brought in, and it took nearly a week to get it all back again. 
The Christmas tide I most remember was after the First World War, when Mother and her friend Maggie got loaded up with a float full of dressed poultry to take to market. It had snowed for two days, and with the snow frozen, they started from the new inn at 7am and returned home at 2am the next morning with no poultry sold. The dealers, who usually came to buy for for their native place, couldn't travel to Hereford. It took about a week to get rid of it all, and it had to be sold very cheap. I sometimes wonder if it was all worthwhile, and one hears it said how well off farming folk are. The years I am speaking of uh, was anything but wealthy. The hour, the year I am speaking of was anything but wealthy. The hours, days, and nights spent attending sick animals, and sometimes hours after the inn was closed, churning cream into butter. And when it was sold, it fetched two shillings to two, two and six per pound. We faced blizzards at night to rescue our few sheep and lambs, but they were part of our survival, and so it had to be done. I think I was about 12 years old when the rumblings of war were heard. This, of course, was the 1418 war. We were far enough from the war, but it left its mark. In fact, life was never quite the same. My eldest brother, Capel, had to join up and was first stationed at Oswestry. Within about four to six months, he was drafted to the Middle East and didn't return until the war had finished. His regiment got cut up and what was left got put into other regiments. I was taken from school at 13 to fulfil his jobs at home. It seemed awful in a country district like ours to see young men going off, to far- going off farms to join up. Very few returned, and those who did were quite different people. The others stayed in corners of unknown fields, which is forever England. My father, who was in his fifties, joined the VTC like the home guard of the last war. He trained like all the rest of the older men who were left at home. I used to clean their buttons and keep the records in the platoon book. My father was a wonderful gardener. He produced all the vegetables and fruit from other's stall in markets. He bought rabbits off a farming neighbouring farm, which was infested with them, and mother took them to market as if and they were rationed and sold off and provided good meals for us in those days. My eldest brother had a long spell in hospital in Egypt with fever and when he got better he was flown to join his regiment which by this time had reached Jerusalem. When they left the Middle East they came via Italy through the Alps in cattle trucks to end up in the Rhine with the army of occupation. He returned in 1919, an older and not a very fit man but he was lucky to survive. He sadly missed his friends who didn't return. A local vicar had joined the VTC and did his training with the rest. I so remember the day war ended. Our friend Maggie and I went to the attic and found a club flag. It was the only one we could find and we put it out through the high window. We were all so joyful about this time. Thank you very much. It's amazing the lives people went through in those days, isn't it? It's mm. terrible. Yeah. Plus the fact they had a war which we didn't have in between. In this uh, first two decades, we got uh, right a couple of questions um, before uh, we have a quick break. Um, singer Arthur, oh, this is January the fifth, which oh, I know makes an awful lot of difference. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, starring Arthur Askey and Richard Murdoch and first heard today in 1938 now I'm sure you'll all remember this if you listen to um, Radio 4 Extra you get repeats of some of these programmes nowadays 
what was the radio's first regular comedy series? Was it Round the Horn or something? Was it no. before then? No, no, it was if before then. It was Arthur Astley, Astley, Astley. Oh, you, right. you, was it you lucky, lucky people? people. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yes. It was bandwagon. Bandwagon, yeah. that's right. Right, one more before we have a, yep. a quick break. Born today in 1927, what was Robin Lee Pemberton's job between 1983 and 1993? Check that boss of the Bank of England. Yeah, he was brilliant, Brian, yes. Chairman of the Bank of England. And with that, uh, we're just going to take a short break, which you won't notice because things will flow as normal. <laughs> Right, we're all back, and uh, we're going to start with uh, Kate and a, 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 a poem, I suppose you would call it, about Florence Nightingale, famous nurse. Kate was a nurse, by the way, so it suits her. Right, this is called Florence Nightingale, and it was written by Martin Fagg. Uh, right, I think it's quite amusing, I think, what I can tell. Don't let your daughter be a nurse, Mrs Nightingale. Don't let your flossy flush the pans. It's unbecoming a station to moot such mutinous plans. She better serve the nation by tittling and tattling, a prettily, pretty, prettily prattling of nuptial bells and bands. This is going to be one of those, isn't it, to read? Don't let your girdle tie the troops, Mrs Nightingale. Don't let your treasures tread the wards. The work's so frighteningly squally, a nice girl shirks and shuns, repairing the rents of sordid swords and those nasty, noisy guns. Regarding yours, dear Mrs Nightingale, on Friday the 4th of May, what can I candidly say? No wonder you're deep in dismay. Although, dear Flo, is clear in her tiny mind that this gruesome grisly grind is her destiny designed. How shall we tell the foolish girl that the nurse is a slut, a Jezebel, whose lot is an, whose lot is an utter gutter hell of mangling and mopping and sluicing and slopping out, out patients who frankly, sweatily, dankly, only too rankly smell? But she's off, so you say, to that dreadful Crimea. I'm dreadfully vague about Russia, I fear. But wasn't that where Colonel Darcy de Vere, his privates adore him, an absolute dear, was taken so shocking, shockingly, alarmingly queer? And poor Lady Mabs nearly died of diarrhoea. Or was it perhaps in Odessa? No matter the place, what is totally clear is that Flo must say no, she must not persevere. I cannot think what can possess her. So don't let your daughter be a nurse, Mrs Nightingale. Don't let the reckless wretch rebel. She'll sink to a social pariah, cast far beyond the pale. So harden your heart and try a pitiless diet of bread and water. Try soundly whipping your dutiless daughter and make her home a jail. Be bossy, Mrs Nightingale. Foil flossy, Mrs Nightingale. And don't let the hussy be a nurse. <laughs> I'm glad you had to read that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. Okay, January. Sorry about this. We're going to carry on. Brian, so far in the lead, he's got twelve. Alan's got four. David's got five, and Kate's still on three. Right, here we go. Oh dear. <laughs> King Henry VIII wed his fourth wife today in 1540, but had the marriage declared void because she was ugly. Who was she? No, no, I think everyone got that one, didn't they? Yeah, that's one. <laughs> <laughs> everyone knows their history. Um, okay, uh, let's have another. Oh, yes. <clears throat> Born today in 1955, who plays the nervous priest 
in the comedy film Four Weddings and a Funeral. Oh, Rowan Atkinson. Yeah, Yeah, well done, well done, well done. Rowan Atkinson, these were right. One more before we go to um, Brian. Which Scottish novelist wrote The Citadel? And the stars looked down and died today. A.J. Cronin. Well done, well done, well done. Clever, Brian, isn't he? You've got to admit it. (laughs) Okay. Come into this group again. (laughs) 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 I'll go one more. Here we go. Um, Born today in 1934, which actress starred with Sir John Mills and Sir Anthony Quinn in the film Ice Cold in Alex? Sheila. No. Same, same, same capital letter. I can see her face. Not Susanna York. No, 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 no. no, Before then. Yeah. Before then. Sims. I think everyone gets a point for that just about. I think Adam was first. Uh, Brian was first, but everyone gets a point. Okay, right. Um, Brian, now this is quite interesting what uh, Brian has for us. Um, What with all the business about general elections, etc., and one thing and another going on, everyone is becoming quite opinionated. And they sort their opinions obviously far better than other people's opinions, and um, you know they sort of think, oh, are the people worthy of voting because they don't agree with what I'm thinking, etc., etc., etc. And that that's called Brian. This is called the third person effect, and covers misconceptions and the truth and how we arrive at our opinions, and why sometimes we are entirely wrong. The misconception, for example, you believe your opinions and decisions are based on experience and facts, while those who disagree with you are falling for the lies and propaganda of sources you don't trust. The truth, everyone believes the people they disagree with are gullible. Everyone thinks they're far less susceptible to persuasion than they truly are. As an example, some people say to themselves, I can see right through the politicians' lies. People are such sheep. People are so stupid. People will leave anything. I prefer to lead, not follow. Have you ever thought like this? Would it blow your mind to know everyone thinks this? If we all think we aren't gullible and can't be swayed by advertising, political rhetoric or charismatic con artists, then some of us must be deluding ourselves. And sometimes that's you. A great many messages among the countless ones bombarding you every day are considered dangerous because they might sway other people or fester in their minds until they act out on the suggestions coming out of all manner of sources, from violent video games to late-night gambling shows. For every outlet of information, there are some who see it as dangerous, not because it affects them, but because it might affect the thoughts and opinions of an imaginary third party. This sense of alarm about the impact of speech, not on yourself, but on others, is called the third-person effect. 
As a modern human, you're bombarded with media messages, but you see yourself as less affected than others. Somehow you've been inoculated against the persuaders, you think, so you've nothing to worry about. You can't count on everyone else to be as strong as you are, so if you're like most people, there are some voices you think should be quiet. You might even go so far as to think some messages should be censored, not for you, but for them. Well, who is them? It changes with the zeitgeist. It might be children or teenagers or university students, might be liberals or conservatives, might be the elderly, the middle class, the super rich. Whatever groups you don't belong to become the groups who you think will be bowled over by messages you don't agree with. Studies from the beginning of psychology up until today have revealed many ways in which people truly are affected by hidden persuasion. As you learnt in the chapters on priming and the effect heuristic, just about anything you see or hear will in some way influence your later behaviour. And you tend to accept this as true for everyone but yourself. The third-person effect is a version of the self-serving bias. You excuse your failures and see yourself as more successful, more intelligent, more skilled than you really are. Research into the self-serving bias shows subjects tend to rate themselves as more skilled than their co-workers, better drivers than the average person, more attractive than people their age, likely to live longer than the people they grew up with, it follows then that most people would believe that they were less gullible than the majority. Remember, though, you can't be in the minority of every category. When the third-person effect leads you to condone censorship, take a step back. Imagine the sort of messages people on the other side might think are brainwashing you and then ask yourself if those messages should be censored too. Thank you. How did people think? Did they agree with that or disagree with it? Were you listening? <laughs> <laughs> did you fall talking about me at the beginning? <laughs> 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 yeah, we all did, didn't we? I'm afraid um, somebody mentions politics... My eyelids start to droop. It's not politics. It's about people's reaction to what they're hearing. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Built-in prejudice. The way, yeah, exactly. there's a new disease come out. It's electoral dysfunction or something. <laughs> 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 okay, back to the quiz. <laughs> How are we enjoying this? Um, right. Uh, today in 1785, Jean-Pierre Francisco Blanchard and John Jeffries became the first men to cross the channel in what? Balloon. <laughs> Nobody else is trying. It's only Brian. He wants to go it's home early. <laughs> true, true, true. <coughs> right. Born today in 1896, who wrote the play The Ghost Train and played Private Arnold God... Ridley. I'll give you. I'll give you both a point. I give you a point. I didn't point. read the play. Did you know that as well? No, no, I didn't. It's a sad name, Ridley, isn't it? It does bring thoughts to our mind. So, Alan, over to you. Thank you. I'm not quite sure why I've been given this one to read, but nevertheless, 
It's entitled The Passing of Crapper. Now, let me explain. Thomas Crapper, royal plumber and sanitary engineer by appointment, died at his home in January. He was 73. He was born in Thorne in Yorkshire in 1837, the year in which Queen Victoria came to the throne. He was one of five sons. His father was a seafaring man and the family often plumbed the depths of their meagre financial resources. It was because of this that Thomas, just 11 years old, and in the full flush of youth, you can see where we're going with this, can't you? <laughs> Walked the 165 miles to London in 1848 in search of work. Arriving in London, he obtained a position with a master plumber in Chelsea. His apprenticeship earned him four shillings for a 64-hour week. And in the custom and convenience of time, he lodged in the attic over the shop. For 13 years, he worked hard for his master, and then in 1861, he set up in business for himself as a sanitary engineer. It was a good time. To, excuse me. It was a good time to take the plunge. <laughs> as London, after being seriously incommoded, had at last got its first two main sewers, there was work in plenty. <laughs> I promise I wouldn't laugh. Thomas Scrapper's most lasting contribution was his development of the modern system with his valveless water waste preventer, which was pr prompted by the Metropolitan Water Act of 1872. But his high water mark was <laughs> being asked to do the drains and bathroom installations at Sandingham. This was, wait for it, no mere flash in the pan, as it was the start of his being awarded four royal warrants over the period of half a century. From that humble beginning in Yorkshire to his home in Thorset Road, Annerley, where he was able to count Walter Delamere among his neighbours, a chain of events took him along a road that brought him the opportunity to be of inestimable service to kings and commoners alike. He was laid to rest behind it. <laughs> Sorry, there was my mistake. He was laid to rest beside his beloved wife Maria, who died in 1902 at Elmer's End Cemetery. The Great Abbey at Westminster holds his most fitting memorial. A manhole cover displays his name and testifies to the work he did there. <laughs> <laughs> and how's he known? How's he remembered by most people <clears throat> at the time? <laughs> um, wonderful. I love that. <laughs> OK. Um, David, you have... Um, <coughs> ten, ten more interesting things. Yes. This is not a quiz, by the way. And David is reading this, and none of these are made up. No, they're not. So Wait, When I know. first came to Worcester, it, it, I heard a rhyme, um, and it was something, North Piddle, Wire Piddle, Piddle oh, in the yes. Hole. You know, yes. We all know that one. But here are some unusual place names other than Piddle. Piddle. <laughs> The first that's one. Actually, that's very good following crapper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, the first, this is even more abstract. This is Backside. <laughs> Ever heard of a place called Backside? No, it's in Grampian, Scotland. 
Mm. It boasts two locations, actually, called Backside. While North, sorry, North Yorkshire has a back, Backsides. Mm. Um, the next one is Balls, if you'll pardon the expression. As well as Balls, Devon has a Balls Corner and a Balls Cross. Then we've got Crackpot. Uh, the name of Crackpot is a village in Swaledale, North Yorkshire. Probably relates to a pothole in the local limestone. How about Great Snoring? Formerly Snoring Magna. Uh, Norfolk's village is believed to have been named after a local inhabitant called Snare. It's, a little, it's near Little Snoring, which is actually bigger. <laughs> How about Jump? These are all in Yorkshire. Is this saying something about the Yorkshire people? The South Yorkshire village of Jump. And that claims to owe its name to a stream that ran through it over which locals had to leap. Or jump. How about nasty? The Hertfordshire hamlet's name comes from the Old English for place at the east enclosure. Must be nasty. How about new invention? Places with this name are found in the West Midlands. First recorded in 1663 and in Shropshire and Somerset. It may come from a machine used in the local mines. I used to live here. <laughs> Pity me. <laughs> <coughs> Not really. Both Durham and Northumberland have villages of this name. Some say it's a translation of Miserere Mai, from Psalm 51, sung by monks during the Viking invasions. But more probably it derives from Pithead Mere, the marshy wasteland near a coal mine. Number nine is called Splat. The village of Splat, it sounds good, doesn't it, uh, lies between Pity Me and Rock in Cornwall. There are also Splats in Devon's... <laughs> I'm sure there's lots of them. <laughs> but there are also Splats in Devon and Somerset. And last of all, Thong. What a Thong. Britain's one and only Thong is in Kent. The name is said to come from the old English thwong, a narrow strip of land. <laughs> God, thank you, Barry. <laughs> <coughs> right. Uh, what have we got? Oh, born. No, we've done that one. Oh, here we are. The first episode of the Forsyth saga. Again, you have to be of a bit of an age to remember this. Uh, it was screened today in 1967. Who wrote the book on which the series was based? Cordsworthy. <laughs> you want top form, aren't you? <laughs> All right. Cordsworthy. Yeah, John, John, John Goldsworthy. And this what one. What did he have for breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> God, got to catch him out somewhere. <laughs> oh, you're just a good lucky with the questions. <laughs> They're all old, you see. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Uh, to the 1950s, I have no idea what you're on. Uh, born today in 1925, who founded the Zoo Jersey Zoological Park and wrote about and wrote about it in his book The Stationary Ark? Lawrence Durrell. No, Gerald. In Gerald. Fact. Gerald. 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 I'll give you half a point. Not that it matters because you're so far ahead. No one's going to catch you. There was, there was Gerald Dorrell, the one that went to the Greek islands with his family. Mm. My family mm. and other animals. Yes. That's Gerald Dorrell. Is it? Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, did you see any of that series on television about the Dorrell? No, I read the book. 
I was in another country in those days. Mm. <laughs> no, it was recently. Book's wonderful. Sorry? Oh, it was, was it? It was on yeah. television oh. probably last year or mm. possibly the year before. Oh, really? it, was, it, was, it was a reasonably good series. And, right, I've done... Oh, yes, here we go, another film one. 1988 film, how's that for you? Oh, far too modern. Yeah. All right. <laughs> 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 Trevor Howard died today. Oh no, Trevor, Trevor Howard died today in 1988. Mm. Who played opposite him in the film Brief Encounter? Celia Johnson. Oh, oh yeah, Just <clears throat> definitely a, a one for Brian and one for Kate and half for David for coming up a bit late. <laughs> <laughs> right, what have you got, Kate? We're talking to here. Uh, I've got the um, origin of the expression Halcyon Days. So this is nice and calming and soothing for everyone after all that amusement. Halcyon days refer to happy times remembered for their peace, contentment and perfection. Halcyon was the Greek name for the kingfisher. According to legend, Halcyon, who was the goddess of the winds, married Saix, king of Trachis, who drowned when his ship was wrecked in a storm at sea. Halcyon, Halcyon did not know of his death until it was revealed to her in a dream, whereupon she became overwhelmed with grief and threw herself into the sea, close to where his body was floating. The gods took pity on her and reversed the tragedy by restoring Sakes to life and transforming both of them into kingfishers, so that they might live happily together as birds of the water. The gods also promised that whenever she and her descendants were hatching the eggs in their nests made of fish bones floating on the ocean, that the wind would be held back and the sea remain calm. It was said that the seven days preceding the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year in December, was the time used by these birds to build their nests on the water, and the seven days afterwards were devoted to hatching the eggs. Although kingfishers nest in tunnels beside riverbanks, not on the ocean, their nests are frequently lined with fish bones, which ties in with the ancient belief and the Mediterranean is usually calm at the time of the solstice, hence the expression halcyon days, denoting periods of calm and contentment. So I thought that was... <coughs> that was quick, I didn't expect you to finish huh? Right, here we go, <laughs> questions... Um, Elvis Presley was born today this is the 8th, we're up to the 8th now we're never going to make it was born today in 1935 what was his middle name? Aaron? yeah, thank you you're well done, yeah indeed Uh, that was Aaron by the way Uh, today in uh, 1969 69 this one which group reached number one in the UK pop charts with Lily the Pink. The pink, the pink, the pink, the Lily the Pink, the Pink, the Pink. No? No? Scaffold. Scaffold, yeah. Yeah, Scaffold. Right. Launched, excuse me, launched in 1989 on a journey to Jupiter, which spacecraft is named after an Italian astronomer who died today in 1642. Copernicus? Or no. Galileo. Galileo. Galileo, yeah. yeah. God, I'm running out of paper for Brian. <laughs> Galileo, okay. Who's, who's that? So, uh, do, do, we've had. Um, this one. Oh, yeah. 
Brian, Brian has a story. Well, a little story. It may possibly be the case that you've occasionally wondered why were the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone? I think this is a plausible uh, explanation of that fact. Moses, staff in hand and out of breath, puffing like Stevenson's rocket, finally reaches the summit of Mount Sinai. He reaches out with his stick and taps on a rock. The staff breaks in two. You could never get the right staff, even in those days. But suddenly, a disembodied voice booms out from the heavens. You have reached the office of the Almighty. Please tap the rock once more. He does so. For commandments one to five, please tap the rock once. For commandments six to ten, tap twice. To speak to an angel, please hold. So he holds comes of the dreaded message. All our angels are experiencing a high volume of calls at this moment. Your call is important to us. If you wish to wait, one of our angels will be with you eternally. Your call is number 5023 in the queue. But if you wish to leave a message, please do so after the thunderbolt. <laughs> so Moses waits. His beard grows longer, his patience shorter. Finally... This is the Almighty's office. I'm Sharon. How may I help you? This is Moses. I think someone left a message for me. Oh, yes, sir, but he's at a meeting right now at this moment. Bear with me. I'll try his office. What did you say your name was? Moses, and it still is. Well, thank you, Mr. Roses. Oh, well, aren't you lucky he's in? I'll put you through momentarily. Music, ancient Vivaldi. Moses? That's me, What's the weather like down there? Well, it's cold, it's raining, I'm getting soaked. What did you want me for? I have some commandments I want to give you. Some what? Commandments. What are they? Oh, you know, general do's and don'ts to make life easy. Are they free? Yes, of course. Then I'll take a couple of dozen. No, 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 Moshe. It's not that kind of an offer. You can only have Five. Make it fifteen. Ten. Deal. Right. <laughs> now, which ones do you want? How about, how about, thou shalt not reserve a sunbed by putting a towel upon it? Oh, let's have something more worthwhile. Mm, thou shalt not park thy camel on a double yellow line? Oh, do me a favour. Right, sunshine, you asked for it. How about, thou shalt not commit adultery? What's that then? Well, it's all about... Oh, come on, Moshe, you get the picture. Just testing, I'll take that one next. Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. But you just said about... Not that way, stupid. Who are you calling stupid? You want it or not? I suppose so. Go on. What about thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's ass? Nah. What's wrong with that one? Well, it's rude, isn't it? Stop getting indignant. Indignation is a sin. No, it isn't. You haven't. Thou shalt not hit it yet. How would you like a good smiting? What did I do? How about thou shalt not kill? Well, I like that one. Does it include smiting? Certainly not. That's my prerogative. 
Just as I thought, one law for the Moses, sorry. Look, this is not getting us very far at all. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll print it all out and send you a hard copy. And that, dear readers, is how the Ten Commandments came to be written on tablets of stone. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. No, this is about um, ordinances of Worcester (coughs) from around 1350. So I just wanted you to pick out some, you know, if you can both have a look at that. And pick out some, because some of them are really fascinating. (laughs) Strangers may not buy barley, malt or any other grain in the market until the corn brewers and maltsters of the borough have made their purchases. This is to be done by what? By 11 of the bell in summer and by 12, 12 of the bell in winter. If any man's wife becomes indebted and sells any victuals or goods, she is to answer at court as an independent woman and any legal action against her is not to name her husband. <laughs> oh dear. No horses have been left standing in the marketplace on market days. Well, it might get sold, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the droppings. <laughs> Bakers shall not be fined for any failing in their craft, but should be punished according to the size of bread. Also, in summer, bakers should buy no corn in the market before 11 of the bell, and in winter, before 12 of the bell. Nor shall they resell any corn coming at the market. Their bread is to be weighed and tested for quality every Saturday. Here's one for drinkers. Ale must be sold to the citizens of the borough, and that the, must be sold. How about that? And the price is to be three gallons of small ale for one penny. The two ale, ale testers are to be citizens, and sad and discreet persons. To see that the ale be good and set. Why sad and discreet? <laughs> I certainly wouldn't be after drinking that amount. <laughs> <laughs> Not for a penny anyway. Is that why you spend a penny? Uh, well, you would after that amount of beer, yeah, wouldn't you? Would, wouldn't you? Yeah. 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 I mean. <laughs> they they yeah. didn't have anything like Mr. Crapper's <laughs> in those days. <laughs> There's extra pages, you know. It's not just that first part. I was going to say, the, the beaters are to be ready with their horses and equipment to bring water to every citizen when called to do so by any man or child when any peril of fire is within the city. Let's see what we've got over the page. <coughs> uh, five, five pageants are to be held yearly by the craft guilds to do worship to God and to the city. Here's one which is almost current. If a man starts a fight within the city or draws his sword or dagger, he is to lose the weapon. If he draws blood, he is to be fined. And if he cannot pay, he is to be imprisoned. This does not affect the right of a householder to correct his servant or apprentice within the law. (laughs) This is one I did know before, actually, because... (coughs) Um, when you become mayor, you, you you sort of go through all kinds of old papers, and especially when you've got to talk about the Guildhall to visitors. And mm. this I did know about. Um, no man may play tennis or joie de pomme within the Guildhall. Fine, 
40 pence. Mm. Now, the reason for that is going back several hundred years, or maybe not several hundred years. What, what, Thir- I don't know what, around 1350, those were written. Oh, OK. Well, around about that time, they did play tennis in the, go- in the uh, lower hall really? of the Guildhall, yeah. but they had to stop it because of the breaking of windows. Huh? Yeah. It was too expensive. Which were very expensive to replace, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, one more then. Uh, we can go back to those. We'll have a few later on if you like. All those labourers who would be hired within the city should stand daily by Grace Cross on the day of work, in summer at five of the bell and in winter at six of the bell. Uh, oh, no saddler, butcher, baker or glover, nor any other person may cast entrails, filth of beasts, dung or dust over seven bridge also no one may shave flesh skins or hides but above the bridge between the watering place at St Clement's Gate and the said seven bridge and they may wash nothing here except beneath the bridge and on the far side of the seven or beneath the slip yeah they could throw it after dark in Hereford yeah that was it you know yeah Kate I've got some children's quotes or quotes that children have said when asked about different things in school. Uh, And this is actually, actually, this is not about, this is what a child has said uh, to a parent, I think. I took my five-year-old daughter to London Zoo and we were standing in a crowd watching the chimpanzees. A very obviously male chimpanzee was lying on his back, lifting a baby chimp up and down. My daughter said, oh, look at that mummy chimpanzee playing with her baby. Without thinking, I said, that's not a mummy, it's a daddy. Quick as a flash, my daughter said, oh, of course it's a daddy. It's just lying around doing nothing. (laughs) Four-year-old asking his dad, do you know you said that you would never get this model railway finished? Well, the day you die, will you write down all that still needs doing and I'll finish it? (laughs) My daughter, age six, flung her arms around me, buried her nose in my tummy, breathed deeply and explained, oh, I do like the smell of old age. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah found a dead mouse. We buried it and told her that it had gone to heaven. After a while, she came to me and said, Grandma, shall we dig it up and see if it's gone yet? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. I'm just have a quick look and see if there's anything else. Ah, here's something. Dominic, age nine, wrote this. A Roman soldier writes home. Greetings, Paulinus. It's been a bad week. I've just got back from boring old Britain. It's cold and gloomy, wet and windy, and you should see the Britons. Ugh, big, ugly, smelly, fat, screaming, hairy yobs. The surroundings are horrible and Sergeant Anders is nasty to us all. I miss the sunshine and the grapes and the wine. I would have to stop now as my spaghetti is getting cold. Dominicus, P.S. I also have diarrhoea. <laughs> <laughs> Dear. Is there any more? Oh, quite a few here. <laughs> well, one more then. Uh, come, we'll come back to that later. But just one more. My grandson Callum, age six, told me nodding confidently and pointing downwards. I know the difference between girls and boys, Granny. Really, I replied, imagining the tricky conversation which might, which might ensue. It's down there, Granny, is it? Boys have got bigger feet. (laughs) (laughs) 
Here's, uh, this isn't part of the quiz, because um, this is a January the 1st thing. Uh, this is in a book by um, Bob Hope. Um, he wrote um, little cracks and things after this, but uh, they're supposed to be genuine stories. This is a January the 1st one for him. The post postmaster of Lismore welcomed the new year in of 1821 by riding in an oyster tub drawn drawn by two cats, a badger, a hedgehog, a goose and a pig. The 97-year-old Mr Huddy won a bet travelling like that today across a bit of Scotland between Lismore and Fermoy. The folks of Fermoy congratulated him on the improvement in the postal delivery service. <laughs> <coughs> yes, Brian. Well, some pertinent remarks from the world of sport. The first one is an American football coach in some exasperation to one of his young players. Son, what is it with you? Is it ignorance or apathy? Reply. Coach, I don't know and I don't care. Jay Leno. I wanted to have a career in sports when I was young. I had to give it up. I'm only six feet tall, I couldn't play basketball. I'm only 190 pounds, I couldn't play football. I've got 20-20 vision, so I could never be a referee. <laughs> W.G. Grace, on one famous occasion, having been bowled first ball, he refused to leave the crease on the grounds that they came here to see me bat today, not to see you bowl. <laughs> Dennis Lilly with regard to Jeff Boycott he's the only fellow I've ever met who fell in love with himself at a young age and has remained faithful ever since <laughs> Daryl Cullinan the New Zealand batsman to Shane Warne although it was fact Warne who started the conversation Warne I've been waiting two years for another chance at you Cullinan Looks as though you spent it all eating. <laughs> President Woodrow Wilson had a view on golf. Golf is an ineffectual attempt to put an elusive ball into an obscure hole with implements ill-adapted for the purpose. And Lord Mancroft on cricket. Cricket is a game which the English, not being a spiritual people, have invented in order to give themselves some concept of eternity. <laughs> a good little point from Martina Navratilova. Whoever said it's not whether you win or lose that counts, probably lost. <laughs> Another comment someone I've never heard of called Leo Durica. Baseball is like a church. Many attend, but few understand. Wayne Kelly, a boxer. I try never to fight ugly people, because they've got nothing to lose. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Barry says, fish is boring unless you catch an actual fish, and then it's simply disgusting. Dave Barry again. Although golf was originally restricted to wealthy, overweight Protestants, today it's open to anybody who owns and is prepared to wear hideous clothing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Gareth Davis, the Welsh rugby player, after a rather downbeat tour of the Welsh team many years ago. We've lost seven of the last eight matches. Only team we've beaten was Western Samoa. Good job we didn't play the whole of Samoa. (laughs) (laughs) And P.G. Woodhouse had something to say about rugby, although cricket was his real game. Rugby football is a game I can't claim absolutely to understand in all its niceties, if you know what I mean. I can follow the broad general principles, of course. I mean to say that I know that the main scheme is to work the ball down the field somehow and deposit over the line at the other end. And in order to squelch this programme, the other side is allowed to put in a certain amount of assault and battery and do things to its fellow man which, if done elsewhere, would result in 14 days without the option, coupled with some strong remarks from the bench. (laughs) Gary Lineker. Football is really a simple game. It's just 22 men chasing a ball for 90 minutes, and at the end, the Germans win. (laughs) Now, Brian Clough was never lost for self-approbation and justifying his existence in the world, shall we say. Being interviewed about his tactics and how he dealt with his team. Well, we talk about tactics for about 20 minutes and then we decide that I was right all along. Ah, yes, said Clough. Frank Sinatra. He met me once, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And when I go, says Clough, God's going to have to give up his favourite chair. And a more modern one, a very short one, Peter Crouch. Or remember him, only just retired. Very tall, very lanky, very angular. When asked what he would have done if he hadn't become a footballer, what would he be? Well, I tell you one thing, said Crouch. I think I'd still be a virgin. (laughs) (laughs) Alan, do you have anything for us? I've got a couple of funny runs, if you like. Yeah, please. Uh, It's good to cheer everyone up on January. (laughs) Bob. A 70-year-old, extremely wealthy widower shows up at the country club with a breathtakingly beautiful and very sexy 25-year-old blonde woman who knocks everyone's socks off with her youthful sex appeal and charm and who hangs over Bob's arm and listens intently to his every word. His buddies at the club are all aghast. At the very first opportunity, they corner him and say, Bob... How did you get the trophy girlfriend? Bob replies, Girlfriend? She's my wife. (laughs) They are knocked over, but continue to ask, So, how did you persuade her to marry you? I lied about my age, Bob replies. Go on, did you tell her you were only 50? Bob smiles and says, No, I told her I was 90. (laughs) (laughs) You another one? Yeah, um... A doctor was addressing a large audience in Tampa, Florida. The material we put into our stomachs is enough to have killed most of us sitting here. Red red meat is awful. Soft drinks corrode your stomach lining. Chinese food is loaded with MSG. High-fat diets can be disastrous and none of us realises the long-term harm caused by the germs in our drinking water. However... There is one thing that is the most dangerous of all, and we've all eaten it, or will eat it, 
Can anyone here tell me what food it is that causes the most grief and suffering for years after eating it? After several seconds, a 75-year-old man in the front row raised his hand and said, Wedding cake. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's just one more. You're looking at me. There's just one more from these laws, ancient laws of medieval England. This caught my eye. If a man starts a fight within the city or draws his sword or dagger, he's to lose his weapon. (laughs) If he draws blood, he's to be fined. And if he cannot pay, he has to be imprisoned. This does not affect the right of a householder to correct his servant or apprentice. (laughs) The fine will be six shillings and eightpence. (laughs) What's not an old... Whether it's a mythical story, a theory about... Umpteen years ago, it was legal to kill any Welshman west of the River Severn. Of the, of the oh, bridge, oh, yes, uh, that's yes, right. Yes. 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 Is that ever rescinded? <laughs> no, there's a lot of old laws that have never been rescinded, like um, Henry VIII apparently is supposed to have outlawed Christmas pudding because he hated it. And did you know, sorry, oh, carry on, carry on. did you know that uh, there is a Victorian statute that is still on the books that if um, a pregnant lady wishes to go to the toilet, she may use a policeman's helmet. <laughs> ah, well, well, well. Whether or not the policeman agrees. <laughs> oh, that's another matter. Yeah, apparently. Well, I, you know, I don't think I'll find a pregnant woman that would try it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't found a policeman that would have seen that. Kate, got something to finish off with? Not re- well, I've got a Stephanie, you know, one-liner. Uh, I bought a dog from a blacksmith. As soon as I got it home, it made a bolt for the door. <laughs> Think about it. Yeah, very good, very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something here you might find. Yeah, sure, fine. The, um, haven't done any of the letters from the Times yet, but this one caught my eye from 1939, just to show that there's nothing new about jargon. A very short letter to start it off this correspondence at the foot of the menu in use in the restaurant car of our most up-to-date railway, we read that a supplementary portion of any dish will be served on request. I suppose the first six words just mean second helpings. Why not say so? Reply from A.P. Herbert, the great humorist and writer and politician in later life. Uh, this is absolutely correct. Another instance, a lady wrote to the manager of a railway refreshment department asking exactly, as your correspondent did, why not second helping? The manager made this disarming answer. I have great respect for the English language, but knowing the public so well, I feel sure for the few who do not understand the meaning of supplementary, there would be many who would accuse us of uneducated crudity if we quoted the phrase in such plain verbiage as you suggest. I fully agree we should all be the better for expressing ourselves in simple terms, but in official printed documents it is not done. I will confess I fear to make myself look odd by being different from others. This must be the same sweet reasoning behind the fact that nearly all politicians and newspapers now say things like anticipate when they mean no more than expect, as to weather instead of just weather, following instead of after, emergency when they mean war, 
One might also mention such recent recoils from plain verbiage, which I have spotted, as deratization, redecontamination, and self-evacuating persons. It's almost unfair to blame a refreshment department when government departments set such an example. Alas, the strong silent services have been corrupted too. I feel sure that if Nelson had to repeat his famous signal today, it would probably run along these lines. England anticipates that as regards the current emergency, personnel will face up to the issues and exercise appropriately the functions allocated to their respective occupation groups. <laughs> OK, this is uh, another... Um January thing from this Bob Monkhouse book said Lady Goff's book on etiquette, etiquette was published today in 1870 it forbade the placing of books by male authors to be placed next to those books written by female authors on the bookshelf unless the male and female were in married <laughs> marriage <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And uh, anyone else? Oh, you, you got any more? No. Um, no. There, no, there, no. there was one in Hereford mm. I, I, I read once that um, no bull uh, could be slaughtered before it was bull baited because they believed it made the meat tender. Really? Mm. Yeah. And they, you know, this, the bull rinks and all that sort of thing. Mm. I think that was across the country. So um, that's what happened before the butchers could slaughter it. A beef cattle. I suppose there might be something in that because the adrenaline which would be flowing through the bull might have some reaction on the muscle. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. You a doctor? No. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was in the RF. <laughs> oh, I've had a It's the same thing. <laughs> Anyway, that's about it, gentlemen. Thank you very much. I think we've all had a bit of fun, hopefully. And I'd like to say good night. Um, Brian, have you got any last comments? Good nights? Or well, any good nights. Fun as always. Yeah, did bring, you bring on the next one? Did you, did you make any um, New Year resolutions? Um, survival. That's all <laughs> I can hope for now. Alan. <laughs> well, I wish you all a good night and a happy New Year. And... Um, May all your troubles be little ones. Oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 not anymore. I'm, I'm too old for that. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been a gas and a happy new year to everyone. Good. Kate? Happy new year to everyone. And I wish you health and happiness and carry on listening. And just let us know if there's anything you'd like us to include. Yeah, well, don't let us know too much. <laughs> Only good things, please, for a happy new year. And it's 2020. Wow. wow. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. I get too hungry for dinner at eight. I like the theater, but never come late. Bother with people I hate. That's why the lady is a trap. 
like dice games with barons and earls. Won't go slumming with ermine and pearls. Won't dish the dirt with the rest of the girls. That's why the lady is a tramp. I like the free, fresh wind in my head. Life without care. I'm broke at soak. Hate California, it's cold and it's damp. That's why the lady is a tramp. I like a prize fight that isn't a fake. That's why the lady is a tramp. Why the lady is a tramp I like the green grass Under my shoes What can I lose? I'm flat, that's that I'm 